Welcome to the Culture and Performance Podcast with me, Ben Ryan. And this week, I'm going to try something a little different from the usual interview format. Now that the world is opening up a lot more after COVID lockdowns, I've been out and about a lot more too, with teams and organisations and at events both here in the UK and also abroad. And one thing I've done a fair amount of is question and answer sessions. And a number of you have said how you'd like to hear that format on the podcast. So here we go as you ask me anything. Now, thanks in advance for all the questions that have come in via Twitter and Instagram, Facebook and LinkedIn, and some through my website. Now, they really do cover a wide array of topics from culture and performance, business and leadership, teamwork, sport in general and high performance, and also some specific stuff on rugby and rugby sevens that I'll have in on the end. We're going to start with an opener about culture and head to Manchester in England, where Brad Allen on Twitter asks, what would you say is more important, culture and team building for a style of play you want to implement or recruit the most talented athletes for your programme and expect that the talent is going to win out? OK, so um, it's a great question, Brad. And really what you're saying is, are you a buy team or you a build team to give you an example in football um, Real Madrid are a buy team you know the Galacticos they will have people from all over the world that they just want to get in to play their style at their certain time and it won't necessarily thread down they won't have brought through people necessarily from the academy take somewhere like Barcelona or Ajax in in the Netherlands they're very much tilted towards build team so the philosophy that they want to have in the first team will be the same one that they have in the academy so they'll have the right style of players coming through the system which will add value interestingly you've got something called the Bayern Munich mirage which occurs when those teams and Bayern's example are playing brilliantly in a team that works well and it's a build team with the right technique and tactics for that group of players and then they get sold for a lot of money and they don't perform in those other clubs. And that's because of the way that Bayern have built that team up and have created a philosophy where the team is far greater and the impact and the way they play than the individuals. So for me, I like to have one team and one culture and I like to build teams. You like to create that culture from the shop floor, from within academies and when people come in. And I think if you want long-term gain, then you're going to have to be a build team, even if you might have been a buy team. And I think that's a great case in point with Man City and Liverpool at the moment. They've both got big budgets, but they also have both created a culture. So they've combined the two, which, you know, if you've got that amount of cash, then it's kind of the perfect scenario, right? Okay, Richard Mortimer on Instagram. Hey, Ben. What backgrounds do the best operators in the culture and high performance space come from? Is it all just experience or do they have certain qualifications? If it's the former, if it's experience, what kinds of positions have they held? Thanks. Love the pod. Thanks, Richard. And um, this is a great question. So I'll give you a little bit of historical context on high performance and those positions. Historically, in the probably the last 20, 30 years, they've been taken up by sports scientists that have majority have probably come from human performance so that's um, practitioners around 
maybe performance analysis, might be conditioning and strength and conditioning. And they're all things that are the first measurements, I guess, we've had in professional sport, you know. So you can measure how fast someone is. You can organize a model around planning your cycle for training. And that's been, those positions have been held by those people that have had those those data sets, that measurements. Now, culture, you know, you, c- you can't really put your finger on a number if you ask any coach or manager or CEO, you know, how good out of 100, what's your culture? Well, he's just plucking a number out of the air. It's not, it's not got a fixed digit. And, and because of that, it's the last cab off the rank that's been attended to around culture. But as we all know, it's incredibly important for success and far more important probably than some of the numbers that are around your GPS and how fast you're running. So there's been a trend towards a shift towards the environment and the culture. So more ex-coaches, psychologists, and practitioners that have a range um, around what their knowledge base is. So they understand human performance, but they also understand the coaching element and that interface as well as the environment. I think that's probably, if you're looking into the future, we'll start to see those roles emerge more where it'll be someone that will be looking around all of that to help facilitate high performance. And it's not just about experience, but it's about the number of experiences you've had. So, you know, you could be a teacher in one school for your entire career. You could be a teacher that's been in a dozen different schools in the state system, in the private system, in public, in boarding school, in day school. And that's going to give you more experiences to understand. So, yeah, there's obviously some, depending on your roles, you're going to need some some certain qualifications you know for me uh, I've been lucky you know that I did a sports science degree at Loughborough University and that gave me a great foundation and back then there were no kind of personal trainers no one really knew much about nutrition you've only got to go on Instagram now and see the amount of people that pertain to say that they know all about that but for me back then it gave me a great foundation and I kind of peered more into the psychology and the coaching side of things and then I got my a couple of uh, postgraduate qualifications at Cambridge and one of those was uh, to allow me to teach and so I got my experiences through teaching and then my coaching qualifications came through the rugby union um, and then I got some additional stuff that I've done online just to I don't continue my personal development so hope that's answered your question Richard. Uh, Hannah, Hannah Bean uh, on LinkedIn, are leaders born or made? Wow okay now this is a big question. Um, which thousands of years ago, if you ask Plato and a lot of the Greek philosophers, they would say that it's, you know, that leaders are born, you know, and and this immediately, let's go back to this question. Are they born or made? It kind of reduces this all to a noun, not a verb, you know, not an action word. And I'm a big believer that you shouldn't reduce leadership just to leaders, that it's about where you're from, the context of, of, of coming in, the situation of the, of the place you're coming into, the audience, so the followers, and all of that comes into the leadership. So it, does, and it also doesn't help that kind of like when you look back, everyone wants to talk about old leaders and there's a weird, there's a lot of research now that leaders are perceived as being far more influential once they're dead. Um, it kind of goes up and then we look back at those and go, well, that's the kind of leaders that we want, these kind of leaders that are full of charisma 
which as a definition, charisma really means special gift. So immediately kind of what you're saying is, well, leaders are, you know, they're slightly different. There's not many of them and therefore they're, they're more superior to their followers. I just don't like that. I don't want to go down the other side to say that leaders don't need to have any qualities that allow them to do that. But there's space in between. And I think the important things for me, and this this would be a whole new podcast, and we there's a few people that um, social identity theory, if you want to find out about that, is something that I'm really intrigued about at the moment. And what that talks about is that to be good leader and to have right leadership, they need to feel the followers and a leader needs to feel that you're one of us. So when you're, if you're a leader, answer yourself this question. Are you one of us? Do you... Do the team really feel that you're part of you or are you, you know, separate and disconnected and you're not on the ground floor with them? Are you doing your leadership for us? Do you think the followers, the team that you work around, do you think they do, they feel that? Are you crafting your leadership for the us? So just because you're being given a, a, a role, what team manager, head coach, director of performance, headmaster, headmistress, whatever it is, CEO, doesn't mean that you have to limit that title to how you create, how you craft your leadership for your followers and for the environment that you're in. And finally, do you think that everybody around you thinks that you make us, the team, matter? I think all these things are really important to get thrown into this, are leaders born or made? Um, My short answer is that we should have a leaderful group, that leaders can be either, that you can be have a certain amount of traits. I think any psychological tools, any questionnaires to bring out a leadership um, are flawed on a number of levels. And I think that really a leader's relationship with those that translate their ideas into actions are really important. And context is everything here because you can have a really successful team and it can plaster over the shortcomings of a leader. And similarly, if the organisation thrives, the feeling is that, you know, everyone says it's got nothing to do with the dedication, sacrifice, talent, hard work of the followers and everything to do with the brilliance of their boss. So I'm not a fan of labelling these leaders as being out on their own and driving everything. I think everything has collaboration. And I can think of my own personal situations that perhaps rather than leaders being made of the right stuff are they in the right place at the right time and there's definitely some happy coincidence sometimes about how leaders resonate at the right places so my journey as a leader there's been a common thread that I've gone into places to build so whether it was starting as a school teacher I built a P department the first place I was with and then a level curriculum of PE then went to Newbury and we got them to the first time where they had a professional contract to the players and some of the players were full-time and you built that. Then I went to England, did the same thing, created a full-time playing group and then Fiji was even probably the perfect storm. You know, they had gone bankrupt, lost their way a little bit um, from the true way of playing Fijian rugby and I had a point to prove coming from England and it was almost the perfect storm for me. So I think sometimes, you know, leaders are lucky that they can fall into the right environment at the right time. And that can create, you know, the energy around that. Hannah, there's so much more I could talk about here. So um, maybe we can do a podcast with some of these 
some of these leadership people, and I'm, I'll talk about Megan Rates, Dr. Megan Rates, who's a professor of leadership, a little bit later in her amazing book, Speak Up. Um, but I'm going to go to Simon Young from Lapids Sevens on Twitter, and I know I know Simon or, or Chopsy, as he was called, um, when in his playing days. Um, if you ran a business team, what would be the one or two non-negotiables? you would translate from coaching or creating a high-performance rugby squad? It's a great question. And if there was only one that I could choose at the start, initially with a rider, right, that I'd already have done a little bit of an MOT, so I'd gone in and and looked. And that's always how I start in any organisation or mentoring or work with an individual athlete. I'll have that first phase where I'm gaining information to then decide upon the pace and the risk of the decisions that I might be bringing in. So I've done that, right? And then the number one thing for me is I want to create collaborative guardrails. And I'll explain that in a little bit. But really, I hope people feel the same that are listeners. But I want to help create a feeling within everyone that's in this organisation that they can be at their, their best version and they can have a say. And they feel that autonomy and that safety to be able to speak out but that still needs to be contained. If you have no rules or you have no goals or minimum standards, then if everyone's running free, you know, you can't achieve the goals that you want to get to. And I'll use um, a simple analogy around bridges and guardrails. So I remember speaking to a group of athletes in Scotland and we were near the Firth of Forth Bridge. And I said, how many of you have driven over, driven over this bridge? And everybody put their hands up and I said, okay, all right. um, If there were no guardrails on this bridge, how many of you would still drive over? And they kind of said, well, probably, I'd probably give it a swerve. You know, it's very high up. It's very windy. Um, Or if I did have to drive over it, I'd drive really slowly down the, the middle lane. I said, okay, you've all said you've driven over this bridge at some point. How many of you have crashed into the sides? And, and nobody had. And that's how you create good guardrails is it's collaborative. So let's give you a really simple example. Timings, right? You know, timings are important on a number of levels to create flow in your program, create respect. And and they're, everyone agrees that and they're a guardrail. And if you put them too tight, so you say, right, if anyone's one second too late, then I'm dropping you for the rest of the season. That would be so narrow, those guardrails that you're not going to get by in that car. Probably whoever's driving in that car is not going to go very fast. He's worried about scraping the guardrails. You're going to get underperformance. But if it's so loose, it's like, well, uh, you know, we're not. I'm saying about timings, but uh, you're our best player. So if you're 10 minutes late, you know, I get that. Then they're so wide, you're also going to get underperformance. You get that that right. Everyone agrees. So, okay, what's the penalties for turning up late for training? It's this. The players, the athletes, coaches all agree it. And you put your guardrails in place. That means when you're that player, that team, driving down that bridge with those guardrails, you can drive really fast. And you're secure that you know the containment. You know where you can work within the parameters. I think that's super important. It's no good just sticking them in as a leader and not having collaboration and having people agree. But once you put those in, then I think it allows everyone to accelerate a lot quicker. Okay, Andrew M on LinkedIn. How do you identify the things which will provide greatest leverage for improvement in a collaborative manner? 
Okay, I think what Andrew is saying here is how do you go about finding the biggest opportunities for achieving growth as a group? So you're talking about not just instructing as a leader, but having the whole group, the group think, allowing them to drive things. So I talked about in that previous question um, around, you know, that first stage of listening to understand the culture, not just to answer questions. But the second bit is finding the trampolines. So every everywhere there'll be opportunity to accelerate group performance. And it might be as simple as having a bit more engagement in your morning meetings, um, having a couple of coaching sessions that you allow the players to lead or meetings to be led or flexibility around them having some say in when training starts or finishes or how long it goes on for. But these things are, are all trampolines. And trampolines are in everyone's organisations and teams and lives. And, you know, you jump on them, you can accelerate your performance. So for me, I would be finding those to provide that greatest leverage, those trampolines. And that's by getting buy-in and bringing other people onto those trampolines to help the whole team accelerate. How do you encourage distributed ownership or decision-making throughout teams? And that's the second question from Andrew. And it's another one that could could have a very long question, very long answer, sorry. But the first bit is to encourage decision-making throughout the team and distributed ownership. So that means, you know, you've got a leaderful team effectively. Number one thing is create trust. And how do you create trust? Well, a ton of different things, but you've got to understand the people that you're working with and, and know them. So that means have, as as the general said um, famously when he was asked, you know, what advice he'd give to leaders, he'd say drink more coffee. And that what he's pertaining to really is have more conversations, get to know people, find out more about them, what makes them tick, just be curious. And by understanding them more and knowing the person, you're going to start to slowly build up trust. So if I'm coming to a new, I don't know, a new football club and the lads are joking around about one of the players and their relationship or whatever. I'm not jumping in there. I don't know that player. I've been there a week. I'm not going to try to curry favour by having a laugh or asking them about questions that I don't don't feel like I they, I've got. I built that trust up. So you've got to go in on that level where you've got to be curious and build that trust, um, so that then you can start to get more feeling that those decision making throughout the team people are more are feeling more about putting their hands up and knowing that the second bit is that you've got to show empathy and openness as a leader so if you've got something wrong you've got to show at the top that you're willing to put your hand up and say you got it wrong and then the third thing i think to remember that uh, start bit is well firstly like reward and encourage people that have said something and then be consistent in your behaviors so i remember i don't know Let's take um, Fiji. They play a very high-risk game, right? Offloading. Well, Brian Ashton, the old England 15s coach, would say it's never a, a, a risk if you don't make a mistake. But we played high risk. And so with that came games that you'd lose because you threw in an offload to somebody, the opposition that got it in the last few seconds. And easy at that point to be inconsistent as a, as a coach and say, oh, you shouldn't have done it then. But as Osea Klinsau, our captain, would always say, you live by the sword, you die by the sword, and we just make our sword sharper. And so it's important that if you're encouraging people to speak up, and, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, 
in another question that you also make sure that if somebody says something that's maybe not the right thing or does something that's not the right thing, but you encourage encouraging them to create that landscape, then you don't belittle them or be negative about them and you back them. And then, then you get into that kind of cycle where if you fail, then you learn, then you adapt and then you innovate. So praising, finding small opportunities, like these microdosing times to find those those opportunities to um to praise and also i think was really important and um we'll talk about leaders and creating captains a little bit later but also looking for those culture architects they're easy to find or a lot easier they're those ones that think a lot like you as a coach or a leader or a ceo or a boss and you can see they're aligned and you want them to reinforce some of the, your thinking to bounce ideas off and to again create that acceleration in performance but also you need to find the culture power brokers and Andy Milburn talked about this in one of the previous podcasts where he said you know find those culture power brokers now those cultural power brokers are the ones that have a lot of influence around the group and they might be the ones that are making others feel like they can't speak up or they might not have room to speak up because they're talking they don't always feel positively about the leadership or the captain or other people so they're really important because they're big influencers. And so you've got to find those and I've encouraged them. Normally I'd give them some responsibility. I would also make sure that, you know, I'm feedbacking feedback to them consistently to allow them to help drive the program in the right manner as well. And there's some other questions that we're going to, we're going to follow up with this slightly later as well around speaking up. Rod Bannister from New Zealand on LinkedIn talked about, well, what's the recommendation for stopping and disconnecting from the 24-7 world we live in? Okay, I'm going to point you to one of the previous podcasts, Owen Valencia of the New York Knicks, when he talks about routines and mindfulness and meditation. There's a lot to pick out from that. From personal experience, I'm also going to give you some books, actually. Let's start with some books. There's a really good book called Rest by Alex Sujung Kim Pang. If you want to um, read a little bit more about some of the routines into creating some mindful moments and some rest. Also, a really good book by Sarah. I think it's Sarah. It could be Sarah or Sarah Milne-Rowe, who's a performance coach. She's got a really good method called the SHED method. And the SHED method talks about what it stands for sleep, hydration, exercise and diet. Now, you know, my consultancy is called Sleep and Water, not because I'm trying to flog more mattresses or water bottles. It's because they're the two basic foundations, which if you get those two things right, then you can really build performance and wellness and happiness. And it does link in, Rod, if you bear with me on this, from disconnecting from the 24-7 world, because often you, you, you're running too fast. That uh, And John Sutherland talked about this in one of the podcasts recently that everything's done too quickly and you need to slow down and you need to think about how you are looking after yourselves. So one of the things I do is I look for kind of what I think in rest and Alex's book, he talks about deep play. So doing things that is not just, I don't know, you're not on your iPhone and playing um, blackjack or something like that. It doesn't really get, doesn't really drag you into the world i like um, reading fiction books so if you're not careful like i'm on amazon ordering books that are going to help you know what i do in the workplace all the time and you end up just doing a lot of great learning but you don't 
perhaps get into this other mindful state. So I'm reading an amazing book called The Overstory by Richard Powers. So I think it's won the Pulitzer Prize. And um, that's taken me into a whole world, which I won't give away much of the story, but um, it's a it's a brilliant book. Um, and occasionally I'll read some that will, will cover both areas. That is, it might be a great story, like um, Ben McIntyre's SS Rogue Heroes, but I'll also get bits of that for some of my ideas around culture and identity. So that's something I I like to do. Those sort of things that just distract me, and also routines. So I have micro routines where I'm not doing hours of mindfulness, but I might do some deep breathing. I do do cold showers, and I have done for years. I think my old physio of England, Brett Davison, got us diving into the. Well, I didn't dive, but in Wellington Sevens in New Zealand, we would get up early and they'd dive into the um, into the ocean, and we'd get cold showers. And I carried on with cold therapy with the Fijian teams. Um, they didn't all love me for that, uh, but I've carried on doing it myself. And you know, whether it physiologically, there's lots of research to say it will help. It makes me feel better. Gives me a bit of a kick in the morning. I also um, was speaking to a friend called Orlando von Eindiesel, who's an amazing director. And I got a couple of shouts out to his, I think I've mentioned his documentaries that have won Oscars. Um, White Helmets won an Oscar and Virunga is an amazing one. I'm, actually, this week I'm going to watch one of his other ones called Convergence. We talked about coffee and I was like, oh, I wish, you know, right, I've got an espresso machine. So I chuck the capsule in. And it, in it goes and press a button and that's it. And I've got no sort of ritual around that. Um, so he talked about slow coffee and he's got slow coffee. So I did spend a few quid and got some slow coffee. And that just takes about five minutes, not long. But it does make you become a bit more mindful about the cup of coffee that you're going to have in the morning. And I'll try to do things like that. I'll try not to jump on my phone straight away. Have a bit of a block from that and prioritise time where I, I don't have my phone on. Um, I was speaking to somebody recently that works in high performance in a big team and they encourage pretty much they have a rule that you can't contact if you know as long as there's no game on Sunday. They give them Sundays off so no one gets contacted unless in case of emergencies. And that's great for just your, your welfare. You know that you've actually got space in a hectic week's and so doing that and there's little hacks where you can my calendar is shared with a couple of people that um will organize my diary you know I'll, I'll 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 put in some places where i'm saying there's a meeting that doesn't exist just to allow myself some time for me really and i think that's really important okay lucas and i hope i pronounce your your surname o'callahan from the gold coast in australia beautiful place um got some great memories up there with the fijian team um, not so much with the England team. We had one tournament and actually we had three career enders in the first game. And I remember we were we drew our first game with Kenya and Dan Norton, who's just recently retired as a top try scorer in the world and is an amazing talent, missed a tackle on, I think it was William Bakker, this huge, talented, great guy of capped for the Barbarians in Rugby X um, to level the scores. And... We ended up not getting out of the group. I came home and I got a grilling from my management and they watched the video and one of my bosses said, you need to get rid of him, sack him, get rid of him. He's not good enough. Um, and I'm glad I didn't and stuck to my guns and he carried on playing for the next 10 years. And if you look at the stats, he's the second highest tackle 
got the second highest tackle count of any England sevens player in the history of 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 their program. And um, yeah, anyway, that's a slight aside about the Gold Coast. Um, and actually, I'll give you another one because when I was with Fiji in my second year, I had um, prolapsed my discs uh, in my back and I, I was waiting for an operation. I was going to have it in Brisbane um, and I was high on tramadol i think i was on three a day it was like i was all over the place and it, and i could hardly walk and i was at this first tournament we'd just won oceana with our second team beat the full strength new zealand team up in um noosa and i hadn't been able to stand i'd had to sit down i could hardly move team would come to me at half time same thing was happening on the gold coast it shows you really how we should all make ourselves redundant because i think we won by about 40 points in in the final um, cruise to it. Um, and I literally couldn't do anything. Um, they ran their own training sessions. Occasionally I'd say something at half time. Um, it's where we all should be getting to as coaches to make ourselves redundant. And I, I, <laughs> I really can't remember too much about that weekend high on Tramadol um, and d- do not uh, recommend uh, that to anyone unless you are given it by a doctor because um, it's crazy stuff. So anyway, Lucas, um, I haven't even answered your question. What's been the most powerful insight or evidence you've used for culture change in performance with a team or a player or an organisation that already has a level of recent success? Great question. Because often, if you're at high-performing teams, athletes will only really change something if they've either got injured or they've been dropped and teams won't necessarily look at change unless they're in like they've had a curveball, something that's they've not been prepared for has hit the team or um, they're on a, a run of losses. But I've never been in, with an individual athlete or coach or team that hasn't got a performance gap somewhere. And it's about identifying those gaps and then either helping them have the tools for them to implement yourself themselves sorry or for you to help or collaboration or whatever it is or get the people in around to help and um, I think sometimes something as simple as giving an athlete that is all about outcome goals scoring goals scoring tries changing it to process to just give them more perspective in in their overall game to make them more of a team player perhaps and to de-stress them a little bit because you know if you're a high-end professional athlete and the pressure's on you to get 30 points a game in an NBA ga- game or a goal in every Premier League game or a hat-trick in every Premiership rugby match, you're going to be maybe making the wrong decisions as the clock is ticking, that goal's not been scored, those three-pointers haven't gone in, um, that's detrimental to the team. So just even putting something as a, as a process goal, which I've done on a couple of occasions, set some three or four goals that they look at before and h- half-time and after the game makes a big difference. And I think just coming at a sport from a different viewpoint, I've loved doing some work in other sports recently because coaches, athletes, managers, well, particularly the coaches and the management, they don't see me as any sort of threat coming in because I'm, you know, I'm not a footballer or a basketball player or a cricketer. I'm I'm coming in from a a separate viewpoint where I just want to help them get better, maximise their impacts. And so I've really enjoyed that. It's been difficult when I've gone into doing that for rugby because for the opposite reason, um, they'll feel that maybe he's coming in. Maybe they've got me lined up to take a, their slot or to take their job 
um, which isn't true at all. But it does make my job a little bit more difficult and people less open for change. So I hope that answers your question. Mark Leopard, headmaster from the British school in Al Kabarat. I'm not sure if I pronounced that right in Abu Dhabi. I've definitely pronounced that right. I've been there a few times. Um, a beautiful place via LinkedIn said, OK, my question is around building the right team. When you have a team and one or two individuals that do not buy in, how long do you take before addressing that and how do you tackle it, particularly if the issue is not ability, but it's attitude? This is common, right? You get this quite a lot where you've got one or two athletes, players, kids in your class, um, people that work for you in your department that are not sticking to task and not doing what everybody else is doing. And talent's not the problem, but it's the attitude. Number one thing, rewind a little bit, get the induction right. So often you'll see a player or an athlete or a teacher or somebody going into a new organization and the boss will say, crikey, they're not doing this. They are, I mean, how am I going to, they, they're not listening. They're not buying into how we want to do things. And you ask them simple question, you know, what, what did you do in their induction? And often there was no induction or it didn't cover off the really important stuff to set those guardrails and that understanding on what's required, some goal setting or whatever it might be. So get that induction right. Think about it and make it really creative and exciting, alluring to anyone coming into your organisation or your team. Um, you know, I love teams that really celebrate when somebody's new into the team. You know, they're shown around the ground, they're given a history of it and what it means to play for this club and wear the shirts. Um, when they make their debut, you know, you can do things so creatively to uh, get that buy-in. And that links into the finding your power brokers as well in those inductions. You'll get a sense on, you know, where that will, where they will be around that power broking. And you can then empower them. Now, how long do you take before addressing? Well, the answer is don't. you don't take any time at all. Immediately. Anything you see, don't allow it to have a long tail. Because, you know, that tail can flick around and cause carnage. You've got to deal with it straight away. And that that's good coaching, good leadership. You know, and as a young coach, I often was terrible at that. I would allow people to get away with too much. I'd hope they'd change. Um, and I know now that you can't allow that to fester because it builds momentum and it gets it gets unstoppable if you do. Get into it straight away. And that means goes back to your induction and your standards and what's required. So I don't know. One of the things that you might say with the Fijian boys, we had um, a standard that no one would put their no one would put their hands on their knees um, in training because it wasn't so much about the physiological advantages of having your hands on your heads and opening up your lungs, and it was not as much about the psychology either about showing the opposition that you don't look tired. It was our mindset. We wanted to get fitter. We had agreed that there were certain non-negotiables and that was one of them. And so if you saw one person do it, I think the first time I saw it, I said it was going to be 10 burpees for everyone. That first session, I think we had over 300 burpees. It took a long time to finish and just as well, we didn't have a tournament that weekend, um, but it dramatically went down. And if I'd let it fester, you know, for a week, we probably got to a ridiculous amount. Plus it didn't, wouldn't have the impact. Um, so immediacy is really really important 
Okay, Neil Thomas on LinkedIn again. I am interested in the work you do with teams, both sporting and business, around high performance culture and systems. Thanks, Neil. It's it's about the most exciting thing I do, actually. I love it. I love, well, three things. I love trying to maximise the impact of the coaches and CEOs and management and uh, senior players or whoever I'm working with. I really enjoy trying to find performance gaps or narrow those gaps for the athletes and the organisations to help them get better. And it's constant. You, you know, you, culture is like a garden. You know, there's some stuff that you can leave, don't, doesn't need watering for ages, really tough. There's other stuff that needs constant. You might you not, can't put one thing next to another because cause it might cause some grief and uh, something needs cutting. And or you, you can't leave it alone because if you leave it alone, suddenly your garden doesn't look as good and it's um and that's the same with culture now you said do you think that looking at culture and systems at a local club level can have an impact even in a non-professional environment neil said it's something i'm considering approaching a local club to work with them on but wanted to ask if you had any first-hand experience in doing this um thanks neil well look as a teacher you know there's lots of places that i worked in i was a i was a supply teacher so i was in places like um a state school behind ikea and brent cross and then a, a couple of terms in a school in southall uh, cardinal wiseman um so the, these were not professional athletes but you still had to create a good environment particularly like i remember the football team it was actually the first basically the first team i ever coached was the under 14 cardinal wiseman football team played christmas tree formation uh, very successful, but for, there were, we only had staff for one team. So there really were some quality players in that team and he didn't have to do much. But what was important was it was after school. Um, we had limited uh, resources, so light would fade at, you know, in the winter months and stuff. Timing was really important. So I had to create a culture where I really valued them, wanted them to get excited about coming and also made sure that they, they got there on time. Because I remember like in the summer... Um, the cricket team that I took didn't really trust me. They wouldn't give me my, um, they wouldn't give any of the valuables over during the game. So when we're in the field and someone knocks a, a nice shot where they've got to, the ball goes past them, they've got to run and go and get it before it goes to the boundary. Um, well, their, their coins and their car, you know, their, their home, their home keys are falling out of their pockets and they're then reversing back, picking them up and then going to get the ball. But, by then it's gone over the gone over the boundary um and and they hadn't trusted me enough that group and I'd hardly been with them and good lesson for me um yeah sorry I'm going off on a uh, on another side angle but I think yeah I have done that and because if you look at it in basic terms everyone wants to be valued and everyone wants to be in a team or an organization or give up their time for something that they enjoy and, and has fun. So if your culture isn't right, if it's not one where you can answer the question, do people come in to wake up if they're going to go to your training session or go into your office um, or go to your school, or go to your club, whatever it is, with a smile on their face and a skip in their stride, you know, that's, that's where you want to get to. Um, that's why people stay at organisations. That's why people do extras. Um, that's why you don't get people leaving to the opposition. Um, that's why you don't get infighting. That's why new ideas flourish because everyone wants to help and be part of the we that no me exists. Then yes, a hundred percent. And and whether you're getting paid or not for for what you're doing um, is really immaterial. Emma on Instagram. Hi Ben, you've spoken about mentors on the podcast. 
Who are the people you look to for advice and which leaders in general have been the biggest inspiration to you? Gosh, okay, right. I've set up this four-way mentoring process that I find really valuable. And the four-way is I'll have um, a group of people that will change and you know depending on where you are and what you're doing that are kind of those those gurus those master coaches the older generation of coaches that have a huge amount of experiences and I really trust and I know that they want to help me for the right reasons and um gosh he wouldn't like knowing it but when I occasionally I called Dr Austin Swain who was on one of the previous shows in fact we had him on two or three parter um he was an old professor of mine at, at Loughborough. Um, he's, uh, he's not old. Um, that would be unfair. He's just older than me. Um, he would give me some really sage advice on a whole number of things. And there's other people in different sports that I do that for. Um, that I do that, I ask them. Then I've got, so that's level one. Level two and three are at kind of my level in and out of my sport. So somebody that doesn't work in when I was a rugby coach, We'd be working in football or cricket or track and field or basketball. It doesn't matter what it was that we would be able to bounce ideas or share problems or try and problem solve each other's um, stuff going on. And it gave kind of an outside view on things and a bit of quality control and a safe space, really. So I have that. And there's loads of people um, that I do that with now in high performance. Quite a lot of the guys that I've and, and women that I've interviewed and then I'll also have someone from within the sport. So probably when I was with England, it might have been, uh, you know, another country in another country, um, but that you'd bounce ideas off again. And um, I really enjoyed that. And then the fourth, because that's two and three, the fourth stage, fourth for mentoring is I would I, I mentor athletes and younger coaches that um, remind me of my basics. You know, so if I'm mentoring a, a coach you know and I'm talking to them about some of the fundamentals and listening skills or creating your program and planning you know it reminds me of well have I done that myself am I still adhering to the things that I know are important because um, particularly I remember with my England sevens my last year we I wasn't doing that you know I was getting so caught up with fighting with my bosses about stuff that I was forgetting about strategic planning and some of the technical and tactical stuff and my relationships within the team. So I think it's really important to remind yourself of that. And so that's how I how I do it, Emma. Bruce on Twitter. Um, I've got a feeling I might know which, which Bruce this is. It could be Bruce Aitchison up in Scotland. has an amazing podcast. Um, okay, he's just said, I've just read the captain class. How did you choose your captains? Um, I haven't read the captain class, but a couple of people have mentioned it to me. So it's, it's going to get read. How do you choose captains? How important do you think the role of the captain is? And three, uh, will you be dancing on BBC Strictly? Um, uh, well, that's an easy one. No, um, for a number of reasons, but mainly because I don't want to and no one knows who I am. Um, but the first one is how do I choose my captains? It varies. And we go back to that question around leadership you know you need to think about the situation so you you know what where's this team this team in what what position are they in what type of leader or what type of character might help what type of captain might help um and the situation and you do want a cultural architect you do want someone that agrees and thinks about the same things that you do but it's often instinct around 
where they lie within the group, you know, and it's not about a popularity con- contest having a captain, but it is about I if I was have a preference, I like a ca- captain that leads by example. So like take off Seacle in the cell, you know, he'd win the fitness tests. He would be given it his most. His GPS stats would be the highest. Uh, Greg Barden would be very similar with England sevens. I can think of countless rugby co- captains that I've had that would be like that. And that's just a preference. Um, I've also had captains that have been a bit more um, individualistic and I've wanted to get them to become more of a team player and put the team first rather than them first. And so they're a power broker because they're pretty influential, particularly if they're one of the top players or one of the experienced players. So you give them you give them some um, responsibilities and you hope that they embrace that. And by and large, generally they do. And, you know, there is a risk in that. And you weigh that up when you're deciding on the type of captain that you that you want. I do think they're important because they can accelerate performance. They can also slow down performance if they create a seam that's untidy. You you have seams everywhere in performance sports, you know, and good seams are tight and they're smooth. You can hardly see them. Um, in fact, you know, the seams on a British cycling uniform actually improve um aerodynamics so you get that right it can really make things better but if you get it wrong or you have a a captain that has a rift or a break in communication with the leadership or the staff um, or the coaches or the supporters or the board then those seams start to have holes in them and fray and worst cases they tear and then you've got a breakdown so the captaincy is important to create those smooth seams bruce luke so Luke Omani, um, and I've got a piece of paper here that I've written notes about this because this was a great one. So Luke Omani from Cork in Ireland, um, beautiful place where my mates Paul Burke used to play for Cork Constitution and I know he loved his time down there. One of my biggest struggles is to try to get players to communicate with each other and with coaches, to be vocal at training and be open about their opinions. So how do you create an environment where feedback comes naturally and where positive criticism is accepted as the norm? Okay, um, it's probably the number one common thread I see. So don't worry, Luke, you are, you are literally in a very, very large group. And there's so much here. The first thing really that I'll say is, okay, why is it such a big issue? It's such a big issue and big problem Um, amongst so many organisations and teams because a large majority of those look at it the wrong way. So they'll go, right, okay, I'm going to create an environment where everyone can speak up. You know, I'm going to ask open questions, ask for feedback. Um, I'm going to be consistent as a leader and take on board everything. Some of the stuff I talked about earlier, you know, you're going to create trusts and all that stuff, which is super important. But... What you're failing to understand is you're not giving any of the tools to those people that might actually not quite understand how to um, how to have a voice. And I think that's really important. There is a book, and I talk about it now. Megan Rates, and actually you pronounce her name Rates, but it's spelled R-E-I-T-Z. With John Higgins, did a great book called Speak Up that's recently come out, and I've done a. Um, a project for the Boston Consultancy Group on psychological safety pretty recently with her and um, and another doctor in anthropology from Stanford. 
and I thought I would read her book and it's a great book. And what she talks about is speaking up is relational. So she talks about truth, about creating trust, which I've talked about, the risk that anybody has when they are speaking up and how, how you can mitigate that, to understand the landscape of who you're speaking to. The T stands for titles and hierarchy. So, you know, it's one thing talking to your teammate that you play alongside with on Saturdays and how comfortable that might be in the change room. It's very different talking to the owner of the team or the boss or the manager. And then how? And you get into your ABCs and I love my ABCs and ABCs stand for approach, behavior and conversation. Everybody likes to be spoken to differently. Everyone likes to be create, create an environment where they can speak up differently and that approach you know, we go into the formal, informal, structured, unstructured, you know, so do you speak to someone on a one-to-one across a desk because that's how they like things? Or do you grab them after training and walking into the changing room or to grab a uh, soft drink or whatever it is? And that's how they feel that they can have their voice and talk. How, how do you find that approach? And then your behaviours, you know, your body language, um, where you have that conversations and how they have that. And that you make sure that those conversations then you come back to that they feel like they're being heard. And so do you need to put all of those things in place? Because you've got to create a situation where someone is willing to say something and someone is willing to listen. And uh, a great phrase that I can't remember who's it attributed to, but it's not just and this maybe sums up my answer here. It's not just about creating a voice for the voiceless, but it's also you need to create ears for the earless. And um, yeah, the speaking up book's great. Um, also, if you want a slightly different side to it, uh, Ray Dalio, he's um, a guy that's got a book called Principles that I read a few years ago. He's a billionaire, um, all made his, made his money didn't inherit it he's got a company called Bridgewater it was an investment company or is an investment company Um, and his book talks about creating the environment where you quickly get to the problem and the solution and you get rid of any of the stuff around people feeling that they can't speak up it's it's again it's another great book Um, also if I was going to give you some some tools make sure that you're creating small little opportunities to encourage that so i remember with fiji when i went over there first um no one spoke to me for months and then oscar the captain he was more of a cultural architect he started to drive things within the group i knew i needed to get more than just one person on side so i would find opportunities to speak to players if i saw them do something good i would tell them when we had a water break you know apasai you did that brilliantly you know this is why I think you did it so brilliantly. I would love if you could share this to the group now when you're having your water break and that would give him encouragement to speak up and then he'd say that and then publicly you would praise him. That would encourage more people to see that that, that was a good thing. Um, and again, it goes down to you know the culture and the environment and making sure that you, you understand where you can intercede as a coach or as a leader. So, um, and it's a long game. Don't try to get quick wins. But it's one that will really be fruitful if you uh, if you get that right. A second question from Luke as well. And do you think the development of technology and how young people communicate, texting, TikTok, WhatsApp, is making the people management side of coaching harder and harder? Yeah. Look, I've been in MBA changing rooms where 
um, players have been on their phones to agents at half time, which I don't think is ever a good thing. Um, WhatsApp groups can be of benefit. They can also one message as anybody that's listening will know one message can be read and interpreted differently to to another person. And, you know, if I, you know, my advice would be if as a coach or as a player or anyone that's in a WhatsApp group, if there's anything important you've got to say, don't do it on the WhatsApp group. Pick up the phone or meet someone, do it face to face. They can see what you're saying, not just read what you're saying. And I think it is harder, you know, and it's an education piece because it's important, again, that people feel they can be their own, their own best version. And for a lot of people, you know, the endorphins that you get from social media are important for them, but also it can dis- distract. So I think it's an education piece. It is harder for sure. And um, as most coaches in the modern era have seen, by and large, you can't get rid of it. You can control it and you can educate and you can um, you hope that most of the time that the players will make the right decisions. Saying that, I've been in teams where I have we've banned phones, but it's been agreed by everyone. And it's been for short periods where we've wanted to control our environment. And I think that's quite important. You know, just before your your big games or your matches, ask yourself the question, you know, and this is also a question I speak to a lot of athletes and coaches about around social media. If you're going to pick up your phone an hour before kickoff to go on Instagram or go on Twitter, team's been named, you know, you can have a little look at that. Ask yourself the question, is it going to make me perform better today? The odds are probably no, but that's the question that they've got to answer themselves. And I think that's really important um, as a start point to then give an education tool around that and personalise things. So there's a lot more to that, but I think that's my answer in the in the short form. All right, I'm skipping through here. Chris Lateral on LinkedIn. Um, what one thing did you learn from Fijian culture that you've completely adopted in your life here in the West that has changed your philosophy in your life? It's Velamani. You know, it's an old Fijian phrase. I'm sure a lot of my listeners will um, know I've talked about this before because I've got a tattoo on my wrist of it. And Velamani means work together, love each other. And you know, living in Fiji and having to have the help of everybody around me, you know, for the, my first two years in Fiji, it was an all Fijian staff. Um, I relied on them hugely going into that, uh, the new culture. And um, I wasn't, I didn't submerge myself in expat life as so many people do. I wanted to be part of the Fijian culture. You know, you quickly realise you can't do anything in life on your own. You need help of those around you. And, um, and so that's something that I've taken with me, um, Chris, from, from Fiji. Okay, and a couple of rugby ones. Ben from Tarawa in Kiribati. Um, I think we played against Kiribati once in the um, Oceana Games. Um, what was your best sevens team you've ever coached? Are you planning to start coaching sevens again? I can answer the second one. I don't have any plans to coach sevens again. Um, just lots of other things I'd like to do, really. And I'm really enjoying some of the work I'm doing now and some of the potential opportunities in the future. So nothing in the short term um, for me. But I was at Singapore Sevens recently and I watched all the Vancouver games of the HSBC World Sevens series. And I do miss those two days in tournament where you're going on this kind of snakes and ladders as a coach of winning, losing, injuries, yellow cards, good decisions, 
bad decisions, all sorts of stuff going on. I loved that. I mean, that is a huge adrenaline shot for every coach for those two days. And yeah, you, you know, only one team out of 16 actually lifts a title, but you do finish those tournaments feeling pretty ecstatic. Um, so I miss that, but um, I can't just get a job where I can rock up and have those two days and then disappear again. And the best sevens team, you know, it's a it's a very obvious one, but it was the Rio 2016 Olympic team. Um, I was so confident that they would outperform everybody in that Olympic Games because of the work they'd done in those previous couple of years. The group were t- totally aligned. They were a leaderful team, but Osea Klinasiao was hugely influential with that, as was our team manager, Rapati Carvesi. And you, you you never panicked much with them because they knew, and you knew they had the tools and the answers to get you over the line. Saying that, I had some very talented England sevens teams that I think really gave every ounce of their ability to to the shirt, and we had some amazing victories in places like Wellington, last plays, um, and some of those players would definitely be up there if it was a a, a, a mashup of all the teams that I've coached. Um, and uh, and related to, to Ben's question, Samorski on Instagram asks, would love to know your Fijian all-time greatest sevens team. This is like, if any of you have been to Fiji, um, you know, around the Tanoa, around the uh, the bowl where they'd be probably um, having a, a, a drink of um, kava, which um, I won't go into kava now, but it's a, you know, it's not alcoholic, but it's a sedative. Um this is one of the things that always pops up. Who's the best players of all time? Again, situation specific, because I remember playing against Serevi back in the day. I don't think I've seen a player as good as him, if I'm honest with you, but I never coached him. So doesn't that mean if that I, I can't, I, I don't know if I can count him amongst the greatest, but he's certainly the greatest I've seen or I've played against in sevens. Um, and then there's some, there's some crackers, you know, and I think in that Olympic team, Semi Kunatani, the beast, Jasa, Vera Malua, Osea Klinsau, um, Jerry Tuwai, who's now the current captain. Um, Sammy Viri Viri on his day was almost unplayable and a world player of the year. And Vatimo Ravuvu, who was an epileptic, um, and he managed to overcome all the issues around that to be a world-class star and also um, be an Olympic gold medalist. Tons, really. So I was very, very lucky to coach so many talented players. Jack from... The Oxford Harlequins on Twitter. It's a club I know pretty well when I was a teacher in Oxford. What advice can you give to a club who are preparing for the next level up in league rugby after securing promotion? Well, congratulations, firstly. And, okay, my tips are, you've probably, after knowing a couple of people in your club, you've probably been on the dance floor quite a lot as far as celebration, which is absolutely part of of the journey to celebrate and create memories. And now you need to get on the balcony to be a bit more strategic about what's going on for next season. But I would say be you. So do not think you suddenly have to do things that other people in this higher league are doing. You know, whether that means bring in different players, spend more money on certain things. I remember when I was at Newbury and we were in level three and we'd got the team for the first time ever into the championship. And on that promotion game, Lots of agents were there watching and they all said, oh, you've got a pretty tidy team. You know, you, you play a, a nice style of rugby, but you're going to need a brand new front five, probably a whole set of forwards if you're going to survive in the league above, you know, the pretty much fully professional league. And we didn't change anyone in that front five um, because 
they didn't understand the way we wanted to play and the style that we wanted. And we knew that we would probably have a couple of defeats against those big teams when we got to the winter and we couldn't run as much as we wanted to. But um, we were happy with that. So just stick to your guns and stay to your values and get that strategy right at the start and then make sure that it comes back into the room during the season when things are going well and things aren't going well so that you can play the long game properly and not be knee-jerk reaction type of organisation. Martin Pryor from Hitchin RFC on LinkedIn. Hi, Ben. My question is, how do you find patience when your training session looks to be going wrong? Do you let it develop and see what happens or step in? Thanks, Martin. And that's from Martin, who's next coach from Hitchin. Um, All right. So firstly, as a, a coach, when I was growing up, I wanted all my coaching to look really smart and tidy and everything working and no one dropping balls and nice patterns. And as you get older, more experienced, you understand that the game is about chaos and thriving in chaos. And, you know, through chaos does come order. And when you, I design training sessions now, you know, um, I probably only got about five or six different practices. Um, you then can play around with the intensity and size and duration and the rules around that. But you like to see chaos because you want decision making within that. You never want drills. You only want practices. And if a practice doesn't look very good, there's loads to learn from it. And I don't think the goal as a coach should be to make sure your practices look neat and tidy or they all go exactly how you want if you have your end goal on what you're trying to achieve. And um, for me, most of the time, it's decision-making under pressure and key things. Of course, if you're doing a isolated practice where you're doing a skill, that's different. And that might be a closed skill that you're trying to create some more chaos in with either distraction techniques or scenarios. But um, generally, I very rarely step in and I let I let everybody else happen um, uh, see what see what's happening I'll, cr- I'll try to allow a lot more peer-to-peer as well learning so that people can st- what I mean by that is other athletes step in for other athletes other players to help them solve things and from all that a ton of learning comes that you would not get if you were trying to create that on in black and white in a in a lesson plan Johnny from Guildford I've heard that you never change your warm-ups um, when you coached sevens is that true uh, yeah, it is true. And 95% of, of my warm-up probably was the same. The little bit that I changed would be I'd always go through our defensive and attacking kickoff setups. And if there was any little nuances on what they were doing in a tackle defence, so there might be a certain thing that we might be trying. Otherwise, yeah, it was all the same. And it's the same because... Um, I wanted to, you know, you're not you're not trying to get them better at a certain skill in a warm up, or you don't. I didn't want to have a warm up that made you know made me look good. Lots of different things, or some tennis balls, or whatever it was. I wanted to physically be ready to go, mentally be ready to go, communicating to the level that we want and the understanding needed on the game plan that everyone had agreed. And so you have your your the standard warm up, and then you can start to see whether the communications where it should be whether the um, intensity is where it should be. And also, really importantly, you can start to sm- see the small things that will make a big difference. So just if they're first step sideways instead of forwards, if their hands aren't up receiving the pass, if they're not chasing hands through, the small micro things that actually 
often on the field under duress uh, when you're knackered and when there's 50,000 people in the stadium and you've got one opportunity and you've got to get a 25 metre left-handed pass under pressure in the tackle away you know there's a continuity there and I was interesting that watching the Singapore sevens I watched nearly all the teams warm up and and some some coaches weren't getting that right they had lots of variation but they weren't seeing the small things they you know and I remember a guy called Lynn Evans who who taught me level two RFU I was doing my level two I think I was doing my level three and I had done my training session he said how do you think it went I said it was brilliant I loved it I thought it was really good um he said yeah warm up was rubbish I said what do you mean he said well had all this stuff in it but you weren't telling them when their hands were dropping in the pass or they weren't communicating etc and I never forgot that because it was a huge lesson for me to remind myself of those things and um yeah I hope Johnny that answers your question Chris a PE teacher in Cambridge um another beautiful city uh, asked on Twitter where do you see the future of youth rugby in schools and clubs with the increased awareness and coverage surrounding head injuries so two things really obviously we've got to get the danger aspect of it of of rugby down we don't you know we know that it's a contact sport and we know that injuries happen as they do in every contact sport as they do in every walk of life and we're not going to stop that and we, we don't necessarily want to because we want to we want to keep the the ethos of the contact sport and the benefits that brings but i think we need to think a bit differently about this because it's not about the actual contact so it's not about for me anyway and this is my 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 personal opinion if a player gets knocked out from a bad tackle or gets their body position wrong or someone tackles them high then we often, you know, that's where we go to straight away to how we're going to find a solution for this. So, you know, you talk about having bigger bands, um, reducing the tackle heights, things like that. But I think we're creating a game where it's easier to keep the ball through multi-phase and smashing people at breakdowns and less guile and less movement within looking for holes and space. And I think that's that's providing more clashes and bigger size. So people are getting conditioned to be bigger. Um, And we're rewarding that by playing pretty abject rugby at times to be able to keep the ball. It's talking about 15s mainly because sevens, the breakdown is massively contested. And so you've technically got to also be good. So you can't just get away with being a big lump, whacking someone, which you can do a lot in 15s. And I think if we adjust those and we look at that and look at how the game is actually being played, that there's too, there's too many bodies on the floor rather than on their feet, that will allow the conditioning to play a faster-paced, offloading, on-our-feet game. And also the laws will mean that you've got to be technically better at the ruck and how we how we adjust that or how we implement law. Then that will mean that there'll be less size and better conditioned athletes for um, a more running game and for me that will reduce some of the head injury stuff because ultimately like not a lot of change from 20 or 30 years ago around actually tackling someone with a rugby ball but everybody's got bigger and there are more rucks which is creating more opportunity for more tackling so tackling's gone through the roof so you've got to look at not actually the tackle it's like how do we reduce the tackles well that's by not making it as easy to have phase after phase after phase. So that's what I do. And sorry, that's a bit of a diatribe, um, Chris, but I hope some of that makes sense. Um, Nimi in Salisbury, 
in England via Twitter said, some of you may have already asked, no, after everything you've written in your book, Seven's Heaven, about the current Fijian Prime Minister, Frank Bimanorama, will you visit Fiji again? Um, that's from Nimi in Lark Hill. Uh, I think I've been down to the barracks in Lark Hill if, you, if you're down there in Salisbury. Um, so I remember when, you know, and, and Tom Fordyce wrote the book, If um, and it's obviously my name down with it, with him. Um, one of the key principles for me I wanted after the book had been um, written was for Frank, the Prime Minister, to read the book and stick it on his bookshelf because he was he liked it and he enjoyed it. And nothing I wrote really in the book you couldn't find on the internet. And that was how I wanted to do it. And I don't think he's... I think perhaps that's not... It's not been... Um, he doesn't feel like that. And I'm sorry he doesn't, but... Um, I think I, I think it's a good read. I think it's truthful, and um, and perhaps it's more about the some of the people, other people in the book rather than than Frank. So yeah, I, I've I've I hope my relationship with him can can be a decent one going down the track. And uh, yeah, I miss Fiji. I'd love to go to Fiji again. I'd take Michelle and um, you know all different plans around the film and things like that, and visiting my friends again and what to do with the land. Um, I'd love to be back in Fiji. So, yeah, I, I hope um, I hope I can go back in the future. Shelley from Brisbane. What advice would you give an 18-year-old Ben and which decisions would you change if you could do it all again? Well, there's probably some... I, I mean, as as, um, as a Spartan founder um, said to me on one of the previous podcasts, um, you know, nothing good happens after... 10 o'clock at night or is it 11 o'clock at night but that's probably that was probably there's probably a few things that I made bad decisions as a student I would say the advice I'd give is um to the 18 year old Ben do more press-ups and it, it kind of relates more to that have more coffees from the general that is not necessarily about that activity although that certainly would have helped I relied a little bit on my talent as a kid and um I like to run around and I was really fit but I um didn't do it enough around the game to prepare myself for the professional game really and when when the game went pro and got some injuries very early on in my career when the game went pro in 97 so yeah I wish I had been a bit more professional in my attitude to the game and not just treated it totally as fun but apart from that you can't really have regrets in life they can eat you up if you do so um, yeah nothing else Shelley from me Tuma on Twitter, Bulavanaka Ratupeni. I was listening to the podcast, Every Dose of Stress is a Gift. I'm wondering if there is a book. Well, the podcast hasn't got a book yet, but that particular podcast, Jim Lair, has 17 books. I've got a few of them on my bookshelf. I'm currently reading Leading with Character, 10 Minutes a Day to a Brilliant Legacy. And Jim was one of my favourite guests on the pod. He's an amazing guy. Um, and he's got another, we've got another book here that um, The Power of Story, Change Your Story, Change Your Destiny in Business and Life. And this is an old book that was recommended to me by somebody else fairly recently. So there's, um, there's, a, there's a, a few books there from Jim. And that, there's a few questions that I've that I've had to leave out because otherwise we'd be going on for way too long. But thank you so much. And like, I'd love to know your feedback. There's some great questions and we'll definitely do this again later in the year. Well, if you want it, that is. It's great in particular that you 
all really get the idea of the podcast. It's about culture and performance and how it fits into sport and all aspects of business and life. Now, next week is back to the normal format and we've got a real treat for you as former England rugby head coach and current Leinster senior coach Stuart Lancaster joins me for a very special two-parter. He really was brilliant in it and I'm really looking forward to sharing that with you next week. Now, if you haven't subscribed to the pod, please do so. As along with ratings and reviews, that is the best way to help the show appear in the charts and let others find out about the show. And if you want to reach out to me, then go to benryan.co.uk or through Instagram, Twitter or LinkedIn. This has been Culture and Performance with Ben Ryan. Thanks for listening. <laughs>